Good morning, Bridge. Good to see you this morning. I hope all of you are having a great summertime and getting to do the things you wanted to do and getting to spend some time with your families. I'm excited to share with you every single week. I love getting into the Bible and learning from it and applying it to my life, and I hope that you do the same. We are going back to a series that we did last summer with new material, of course, that we entitled Kid Stuff for Adults. And in this particular series, in the summertime here at the bridge, what we like to do is we like to do one-week messages. In other words, messages that are kind of all encompassed in that one week instead of having a series where you have to be here every week and kind of catch what we had last week because it builds on the next week and the next week. Because we know in the summertime you're going on vacation uh, and we want you to do that. And so we try to do uh, uh, lessons that are just one week and so that you can get the whole thing in one sitting. And we're doing kid stuff. We're revisiting a lot of the Bible stories that we teach our children in Sunday school and in junior church. But when we get to be adults, we often never revisit again. And so we're taking time this summer to revisit some of those stories, but look at the, looking at them from an adult perspective with adult applications to them. Now, when we left off last summer, we left off with the Exodus, the children of Israel leaving the land of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and captivity. And we discovered last week, if you were here, you'll be reminded, if you weren't here, we discovered that it took the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, 40 years to complete an 11-day journey. You believe that? 40 years to complete 11-day jury. We asked the question last week, what the heck happened? How did that happen? Well, I can't repeat all of last week's message, but in short, God had taken him out of Egypt, and he was getting ready to take him into the promised land, that land that he had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they were ready to go. And so God said in Numbers 13, 1, 2, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. He said, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so what God did, he said, we're right here. I'm going to take you into the land. I'm going to give it to you. I'm taking you now from slavery to the land that I promised your forefathers. This is going to be amazing. I want you to send out 12 spies and scout it out, do a reconnaissance mission and come back and, and tell the people about it. And so they did that, and the 12 spies came back, and initially they said, wow, you won't believe this land. It's amazing land. It's just like God has described it. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But then we saw, tragically, that they also came back with a report saying that, ah, but we can't go in there and conquer those people. They're too strong. They're too many. The cities are too fortified. We can't do it. And so ultimately, 10 of the 12 spies gave a very negative report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, no, we can do this. We can go into the land. But the people murmured and they grumbled and they complained. And they exercised a blunted faith. It wasn't that they didn't have faith in God, but they they just didn't believe that God would bring them into that land. And so they developed negative attitudes. And they started complaining against God. God, why would you take us out of Egypt to this place only to be killed by the sword? And then they started distorting everything, saying, we can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers in the sight of these people. We're in the grasshoppers in our own sight. There's no way that we can do this. And so God then put a judgment on them. And for the next 40 years, until that generation of unfaithful Israelites died out completely, God would not allow them to go into the land. And so that's why it took them 40 years to complete a a journey that was really only 11 days long. 
And so for the next 40 years, this was home. Instead of a land flowing with milk and honey, for the next 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness, through the desert of Paran. Now, that 40 years is done now. As we begin today, and Moses now is calling everybody together. Once again, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. And says, in the 40th year, after 40 years of wandering through that desert, on the first day of the 11th month, I'll tell you, the Bible can be so specific. The Bible's not general. It tells us exactly. It says, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Now God has spoken to Moses again after this 40 years. And he's given them a new direction. And he's called all of them back together again, just like he did 40 years beforehand when they wouldn't listen. And now they're getting ready. God's saying, I'm going to take you into the land again. Now look what God says. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, he says, During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know I am the Lord your God. Now think about that. Put back in your mind that picture of that desert. And he said, for 40 years, think about it. For 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out. Man, I'd like to have that brand of clothes. How about you? 40 years. Their clothes didn't wear. They didn't age. They didn't get threadbare. Forty years, their sandals never wore out. We're lucky to go, what, a year, a couple years with shoes? Forty years. He said, for 40 years, you didn't eat bread or you, 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 didn't, uh, you didn't drink wine or other fermented drink. In other words, they didn't eat anything their hands produced. God produced everything for them, everything they ate. Everything they drank, everything was produced miraculously by God over those 40 years. And God's reminding them of that. And he said, I did that to show you so that you will believe I am the Lord your God. None of that would have been humanly possible. None of that would have been scientifically possible. None of that would have been possible according to the laws of physics. Everything that you experienced in these last 40 years, you experienced because I your God gave you every one of those things. Now he goes on to say then, he says, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything that you do. He said, all of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials and all the other men of Israel together with, with you, your children and your wives and all the aliens living in your camp who chop your wood and carry your water. He says, every one of you. And he says, you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, that God who caused your clothes not to wear out for 40 years, caused your sandals not to wear out for 40 years, that gave you miraculously things to eat and drink. We're, we're entering a covenant here today, he said. A covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day, his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers. As he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he promised that he would give them this land. So they're at a new crossroads now. Now, it goes on to say, after Moses delivers this message, Moses goes up to Mount Nebo, and God allows him to see all the promised land. But then Moses dies there, because Moses, like the generation who died out, is not allowed to go into the promised land. And so God buried him, and the scripture says no one to this day knows where he was buried. And so Moses dies after giving this final proclamation, this word from the Lord to the people there of Israel. 
And so now they're at a new place. They're at a new crossroads. Now they're beginning again. And with that beginning, we pick it up in the book of Joshua. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to that book in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament part of your Bible. And it says this, Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, the Israelites. I will give you every place where your foot sets down, as I promised Moses. So now Joshua is going to succeed Moses as the next leader of Israel. And remember, Joshua is one of the two of the original 12 spies that came back, he and Caleb, who said, we can do this. We can go into the land. So God is going to allow Joshua and Caleb to go into the land, but no one else of that generation. And so God says, you get the people ready. We're getting ready to go across the Jordan River into that land that I have promised you. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over to the land, he said, especially Jericho. Now, isn't it amazing? Now, he doesn't send 12 spies out the next time. He sends two. Now, I don't know if that's because he remembers when the 12 went out, things didn't turn out so good for the Israel. So he sends two out. He says, you go spy out the land. And he says, I want you to spend special attention in Jericho. Now, why? Jericho was a very strategic city. And Jericho was one of the most fortified cities of all the cities in Canaan, all the cities in the promised land. Joshua is an amazing general. He's going to be the, the general of the army of Israel as they retake the land. And understand, Joshua was such an amazing statistician and technician that even in West Point, up through the Vietnam War, they were studying the battle strategies of Joshua. In World War I, uh, British uh, Field Marshal General Sir Allenby used Joshua's strategy as he recaptured and retook and conquered the land of Palestine. So he says, you look at Jericho, because Jericho is located in a central area. If they can take Jericho, they're going to cut the whole land off from north to south, and they'll be able then to conquer the people piecemeal rather than have to face a large army of all the tribes gathering together against them. But Jericho was formidable, as we're going to look at more next week. But he says, I want you especially to check out Jericho. And so the verse continues and says, so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, strategically, that was a perfect place to go. Because as strangers coming in and out of the city, and no one's going to think anything of a couple men going into a brothel. They're not going to spend any attention to them. And so they go into the house of Rahab, a prostitute. And here's where the whole story takes an amazing twist. And that's where we want to focus on today. So in Joshua 2, they've gone into the house, the brothel of Rahab. Now this comes to the attention of the king. So the king sends some of his emissaries to the house of Rahab and he says, you turn those guys over to us. They're spies. They've come to spy out our land. They're here to conquer us. Rahab, Joshua 2 verse 4, had taken the two men and hidden them. And here's what she says. Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I, I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. It's the old movie thing we see all the time. They went that away. And so 
She says, oh, yeah, yeah, they came. I mean, I get a lot of men, get it? You know, you remember what I do for a living here? Yeah, they came, but I didn't know who they were. They were just another couple patrons, another couple clients, you know, and they came and they left. And I, I don't know, but, but it, they left the gate of the city. Go after them right now, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken those two spies up to her roof, and she hid them under flax, where they would take these, these stalks of flax up to the rooftops to dry out in the sun. And so she took them up there, and she hid them there. So the men set out, Joshua chapter 4, so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. In other words, the king said, you shut this place down. You lock it down. No one comes. No one goes until we find these men. And so the pursuers, the soldiers that the king sent out, they took off to the Jordan because that's where Rahab said to go. Said, go that way. They left the city gates. Go after them. You can find them quickly. So now she's hiding them, all shut up. Now, why in the world would she do that? Why would she defy her own king? Why would she protect people who she knew to be the enemies of their people? What was that all about? Well, that's where this, this story just is an amazing story. It goes on to say in Joshua 2 verse 8, Before the spies laid down at night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Remember when those 12 spies originally came back? 10 of them said, we're, we're like grasshoppers in the sight of these people. These people are giants. There's no way we can take this land. And that, that's how we appear to them. We appear like these little insignificant nomads, and they're not afraid of us. In fact, the opposite was true. In fact, the truth was the people of Canaan were in fear and trembling over the Israelites because they had heard what God did in Egypt. They had heard what God was doing in the wilderness, and they were scared to death. So she says, Joshua 2, 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. She goes, now listen, I understand what's about to happen here. She says, now you swear to me, since I saved your lives right now, since I spared you, here's the deal. I swear, I want you to swear that you will protect me, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, all my family. And so the two spies, understanding the situation where they were in, said, our lives for your lives. It's a deal. If you won't tell anybody what we're doing here, we will spare your lives, our lives, for your lives. That was the deal that was struck. So it goes on. At some point in time, she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was on the wall of the city. Now I want you to file that away, that thought. If you're here next week, we're going to come back to that idea. She lived on the city wall. Her apartment was actually built into the city wall, that outside wall of the city. And so she threw a rope down from the window over the wall, because remember, the city shut up. And she lets them down. And she says to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. What did she send them to the Jordan? She said, yeah, they went that away. 
And she said, now you go that away, and you wait three days until the pursuers come back into the city, and then you go on your way. Hide yourselves there until they return. Now, just before they leave, they say to her, the men said to her, this oath that you made us swear will not be binding unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. Remember she said, give me a sign? They said, here's a sign. Here's a scarlet cord. They probably threw that back up to her in the window. And they said, you tie this scarlet cord in the window. And if you don't do that, and if your mom and dad and brothers and sisters are in your house when we come, you will die. We won't be bound to this oath any longer. Now, remember, we saw last week that whenever we look at the Old Testament, we study the Old Testament, that the stories there are true life accounts that God has given us by which we can heed, we can learn, we can apply those. So the Old Testament isn't just antiquity. It's not just history. It's application. It's life lessons for me. It's life lessons for you. And in this particular story, we have some huge life lessons that we can glean this morning and we can use in our lives over four or 5,000 years later. What are they? Well, Rahab was a very unlikely hero. She was a very unlikely hero. Number one, she was a woman. Back in a day when women really were not looked at with any kind of respect. Women were looked at as property. I mean, she, w- women had no prominent place in, in legislature or, or governing or even in society. They, they were there to take care of the, of the kids and to have kids and to take care of the house. And they were there to cook and wash and clean. And that, that, that was it. They were basically viewed as property. She's a woman. She didn't have any influence. Why would God choose a woman? She was a pagan. Not only was she a woman, she was a pagan woman. She lived among pagans. She was a member of the enemies of God, of those people that God was about to destroy. Why would God have anything to do with a pagan? He was wanting to eradicate the pagans. But most of all, she was a harlot. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. She was a whore. Why would God And now, after 40 years, he's once again moving among his people. He's promising them to bring them into the land. And at the onset, at the very beginning, before they even take the first step across the Jordan, God brings into this plan a prostitute. They went into the house. They went into the brothel of a prostitute. Now, you know, in my study, as I was reading a lot of different uh, biblical scholars' views on this, it amazed me at how many of them tried to skirt this issue. They said, well, really, the translation is really an inn, so she was really just an innkeeper. And they try to get around this idea. You know, sometimes we as believers, we, we, we can become overly sensitive. to that. She was a prostitute, okay? She was a harlot. And it's not just one place. Scripture says it over and over again. They say, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. How would you like to have that moniker, huh? All throughout Scripture, in the New Testament, we'll see Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. She was the most un. Un- 
a likely person. Why wouldn't, if God was even going to use a woman, why wouldn't he use some sweet grandma with a great disposition? You know, some nice, sweet, gentle, you know, person who loved peace and all that. He goes to the most unseedy person he could possibly find. Now, remember, when we look at Old Testament stories, what God's design is for us is that we put ourselves in the story. So, so I'm going to invite you right now. Put yourself in this story. You, too, are an unlikely hero. That's how you see yourself. You're an unlikely hero. Why would God use you for anything? I mean, who are you? With all your foibles and all your eccentricities and all of your challenges and struggles, and I mean, why would God? I'm an unlikely. Why would God use me? Why would God use you? But see, we saw last week that God wants to bless the whole world through you. He really does. That, that's how valuable you are to him. We, we saw last week how God now has, has made we believers, the Christians, he has made them his chosen people in this age, in this dispensation of time. And he has said, I've done that. I've called you out of darkness so that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness to everyone else. See, God wants to use us to change the world. God wants to use us to impact the lives of coworkers and friends and extended family members and, and neighbors and, and even strangers sometimes. God says, I want to bless the whole world through you. And I know we, we might look at ourselves and say, me, God? What would you possibly have to do with me? Well, see, that's why this story is so amazing. Because if God, when after 40 years is about to move in his chosen people, in the lives of 2.5 million people, if one of the first characters that he uses is a harlot, how much more can God use you? How much more would God use? See, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, what that scripture is saying is that God uses the foolish. God looks at people who the world, in their, their academic, intellectual exclusivism, says, oh, that's a bunch of fools. And I'll tell you, evangelical Christians top the list of that today. All oh, those evangelical, all oh, those fundamental Christians, all oh, those idiots. They're weaklings. What Ted Turner said? Christians are a bunch of weaklings, and that whole Christ thing, Christian thing, is just a crutch they lean on. But it's amazing how God uses simple people like me and you. When we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, God allows that gospel, God allows that truth to take seed in their lives and their spirits and their hearts. And so many of them are moved to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors that Jesus originally used to transform the world and to conquer the world for Christianity. And see, that's how God's always done it. From back to when he was bringing his children into the promised land, God chooses the most unlikely people as heroes. So I say that to say this. This is the first lesson that we got to go leave with today. Don't you underestimate your value in the eyes of God. I don't care what other people are, are talking about you. You know how they must have talked about Rahab. Oh, that prostitute, that harlot, that slut. But God used her in a mighty way.
And don't you underestimate God's desire and God's power to use you in unimaginable ways. She got that. Rahab heeded the signs of her times. That's another important lesson. She got it. She might have been just a societal outcast as a prostitute who ran a brothel, but she woke up and smelled the coffee. She understood that the Jerichites had no chance because it was God's kingdom itself that was coming down on them. It wasn't just some foreign invaders, wasn't just some nomadic people. It was God's kingdom. She understood this was a thing of God. Rahab says to the spies in Joshua 2 verse 10, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now look what she says. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth below. See, she got it. She understood that life as she and the other people in Jericho had known it to that time was about to be destroyed. It would never be the same again. And she wanted to ensure that she and those she loved most were on the winning side of the equation. She got it. She said, your God is God. And that's why she said, swear to me, swear to me that you will protect me and those I love the most. She heeded the signs of her time. She woke up. There were probably at least a couple, 3,000 people in that city, but she, a humble societal outcast as a prostitute, she recognized that what was about to happen was not a historical event, was not a political event, it was a divine event. I wonder, are we heeding the signs of our times? The kingdom of God is coming again. Jesus is coming again. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm coming again. If I go, I'll prepare a place for you that you may be where I am, and I'll come back and I'll bring you. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. The angels are with me. My reward is with me. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Are we heeding the signs of the time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. The stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus said, you mark this down. Jesus said, you get this. You understand this. I'm coming again. The kingdom of God is coming to earth. And when I come, the nations on earth are going to tremble. They're going to mourn. They're going to be struck with fear because of the great signs and power that I'm going to come back in. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 says, Mark this down. Now, now listen to this description. There will be terrible times in the last days, the days before Jesus comes back. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, 
lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now now let me ask you, does that description define our times? Doesn't it define our times? You know, I, I look at the world today, and again, another week filled with, with horror and tragedy. The terrible terrorist attack in Nice. Terrorists plowing through a group of people who were there to celebrate one of their most important civic and cultural celebrations, Bastille Day. Just mowing them down with a truck and then getting out and shooting. The attempted coup in Turkey. All these things that we're seeing in rapid succession. And that's what Jesus said. He said, these will be like birth pains. You know, they'll start off kind of slow and isolate, and then they'll just kind of rapidly start picking up. But, you know, I see the world today as absolutely poised and eager for some great leader to arise, to to bring peace to all of this. And we know that one great leader is not so great that great leader that will arise, we name Antichrist. And at first, Antichrist will come on the scene and bring peace to the world, and people will flock to his leadership. But in the end, it'll turn out really, really nasty. Are we heeding our times? Do we get it? Do we get it that Jesus is coming and that all signs indicate that he's coming really soon? Are we, are you aligning your life in expectation of his arrival? See, we kind of talked about this, is how we kind of get in these routines and we just kind of wander, as we talked about last week, just wander through life, no destination, no purpose, we just get up and do the same thing. That's not how we, the people of Jesus Christ, ought to be living our lives. We ought to be living our lives in daily expectation and anticipation of the second return of Jesus. And so, therefore, everything we do, everything we think about should have new meaning, should have new purpose, should have a new passion, should be done with new energy. We need to heed the signs of our times, and the signs of our times say that life as we know it is about to end. Jesus is coming soon, and we need to pour our energies and our attention. We need to guide our families into preparation for his arrival. Matthew 24, 46, Jesus said, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. In other words, Jesus said, it'll be good for everyone who is doing the things of God, doing the things I have told you to do in preparation for my return. It'll be good for that person when the master returns. She got it. She recognized the signs of her times, and she took action. Rahab embraced God's timeless offer. Embraced God's timeless offer. Hebrews 11.31. Now we're in the New Testament. Looking back thousands of years to this occasion of, of, of Rahab. And the New Testament says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab. There it is again. Because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Why was she spared? Because she struck a deal? No. It's not because she struck a deal. 
She was saved because she had faith that the God of those, 12, of those two spies, that was the true God. He was the true God. She said, your God is God in heaven and on earth. I get it. And my faith is in your God. Not only did she defy her king, she defied her own pagan religious system. She said, all that, that that we worship and all the sacrifices and all that we have here, it is a bunch of nonsense because that God isn't God. Your God is God. It was her faith in God that led those Israelite spies to say to her, our lives for your lives. God moved them to do that. And that's why she and her family, as we'll see next week, were not destroyed but rescued. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know where you're at in life this morning. We're all at different places, because our journey takes different twists and bends in the road. But but I got to believe some of us here today are in a place where we feel alienated from God. We really do. We don't feel worthy of God. We just can't imagine why God would have any positive interest in us. In fact, we just kind of live life daily expecting God to lower the boom on us and chastise us and strike us down. Someone might be here today and you came to church and I don't even know why, maybe out of desperation because your life circumstances are so bad or maybe because you came just because of a mom or dad or a grandma or grandpa or some friend had been talking to you and you finally, just to get them quiet, decided to come today. And you might think that you are so far beyond God and God's mercy and God's love, you might think there's no way for me. Well, listen, what the story of Rahab teaches every one of us is that God's mercy endures forever. God's mercy was on a prostitute who ran a brothel in a wicked pagan city that he was about to destroy. But when she turned her faith to him, when she said, God, you are God, she believed and she was spared. And listen to me, no matter whether you are living righteously right now or you are living unrighteously right now. Whether you have never trusted before or whether you have believed before and you are what sometimes Christian churches call backslidden. You've gone far from the Lord. Then know this. Here's what scripture says. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from what? All unrighteousness? No, he's got to mean some unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. You cannot go too low. You cannot go too far that God won't willingly bring you back and embrace you and forgive you and purify you from all your unrighteousness. That's his timeless offer, and it's his offer for you today. Rahab received more than she bargained for. This is the most important and amazing part of this whole story to me. What did Rahab do? She went and she believed in God. She chose the God of Israel over the gods of Jericho. She defied her own king, put her own life and family at risk. But what she was wanting 
was not to be destroyed when they conquered the city. Look how this story goes on. Some of you may not know this. You're about to be amazed. In the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, in the New Testament, it starts with genealogies. There's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. The genealogies are, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat who begat. And And we tend, when we get to this part in the Bible, we go, next page. Right? Watch this. Matthew 1. Verse 1, one of those genealogies, a record of the genealogy of who? Of Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus' family. This is Ancestors.com, Jesus, okay? Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brother, and on and on and on and on, so and so and so and so and so and so. But watch this. Simon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Who? Whose mother was who? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, who you may recall, God promised it would be through the line of King David that Messiah would be born. Can you believe it? Not only was Rahab spared, But Rahab became part of the genealogical line of the Messiah himself. God blessed her so far above just saving her and her families from destruction. He brought her in to the most holy, the most pure bloodline of any generational family. Listen, God always gives more than we bargain for. Don't ever forget that. God always gives more than we bargain for. If we'll just do the minimum, if we'll just do the things that he asks us to do, if we'll do just kind of follow the basic plan, God's going to do so much more with that than we could ever, ever imagine. Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. Jesus said, well, you you put your faith in me and, and mom and dad, they excommunicate you and you put your faith in me and your brothers and sisters, they ridicule you. You put your faith in me and your children abandon you. He says, listen, don't you worry about that because anyone who gives up anything for my kingdom and my cause, I'll give them a hundredfold over what they've sacrificed. Luke 6.38, Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. So he says this, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus said, here's how this works. You demonstrate a generous heart. You be generous to me, and I'll put a blessing on you like you can't imagine. He uses the idea of going and buying a sack of, sack of wheat or a sack of flour at a store. He says, he said, I'll give you a good measure, press down, not just kind of put it in there to, to make it as light as they can to charge you as much as they could for the bag. Press it down, the merchant. And they shake it so that everything finds a little ecto hollow. Then it's running over. He said, that's how it's going to be poured in you. He said, but depending 
on you. See, that's what 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. See, the truth is, we can never outgive God. Whether it's our time, whether it's our service, whether it's our tithes and offerings, uh, you, you mark it down. God says this, you'll never do more for me than I'll do for you. It'll never happen. But you have to believe. You have to trust. You have to take that first step. Rahab received far more than she would have ever imagined, far more than anyone on planet Earth would have ever imagined for her. Finally, and it's the key, Rahab did it God's way. She did it God's way. Remember the men said to her in Joshua 2, this oath that we swear to you won't be binding unless you put that scarlet cord in the window. Goes on to say, we didn't have time to look at all the passage. He says, he said, if, if your mom and your dad, they're found out in the street, they're not in your house when we come, and that scarlet cord's not in the window, they're dead. Your brothers and sisters, they're not inside your house. With that scarlet cord in the window, you are dead. Now, you know, Rahab could have said, oh, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Because of this scarlet cord in, in the window, that's going to make all the difference. But she did it God's way. She knew it was God and that the God of Israel was God. And she did it down to the nth degree. Isaiah, I thought of Isaiah when I think of that scarlet cord hanging in the window. I think it's a foreshadow. It's a symbol of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Isaiah said in Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like what? Scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. They, they are red as crimson. They shall be as wool. See, that scarlet color, that red color in the eyes of God has always been associated with sin and with forgiveness. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was sacrificed. He was that scarlet cord not hanging in the window of an apartment on the wall of Jericho, but he was the scarlet cord hanging on the cross. Once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Are you waiting on him? Are you ready for him? Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then the scarlet cord is not hanging in the window of your house. See, Jesus says, or Paul wrote in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 10, he says, here's how you protect yourself. Here's how you get that scarlet cord hanging in your window so that when Jesus comes or when you die, you'll be ready for eternity. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised you from the dead, you'll be saved. He goes on to say, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Rahab believed in her heart that it wasn't the pagan gods that were going to save her or them. She believed that the God of Israel was God. She believed it. 
so much that she was willing to risk the life of herself and her family in defying her own king. It's with your mouth that confession is made. She said to those spies, she said, your God is God in heaven and on earth. And today, God says to me, God says to you, if we want to be saved from the coming of the kingdom of God, from the wrath that is coming with that kingdom on those who haven't believed, then we have to have our scarlet cord in the window. And our scarlet cord has a name. His name is Jesus. And if we'll confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. There's no other way. There's no other plan. There's nothing else that can be done except believing in him. He said, only when we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, only then are we ready for the ultimate invasion of the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews 4, 7 says, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as it was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden his hearts. Today, If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is a day of opportunity for me. Today is an opportunity for you. Maybe you're a believer today. You've already trusted Christ as your Savior. But you don't sense that that intimate relationship with God because you haven't been living for God. And God seems a long way away. You feel shameful and dirty before God, then today's a day of opportunity for you to confess your sin. What does Scripture say? If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just. He's standing by waiting to make it right. He said he'll purify you from all unrighteousness. Maybe you're here today, though, and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Well, this is a day of opportunity. This is your day of preparation The kingdom of heaven is coming. Christ will come in power and great drama. The earth and the heavens will melt away. But you don't have to melt away and be destroyed with them. If you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God is raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for the story of Rahab. Lord, we thank you that that story is there for me. It's there for everyone here today. It reminds us that, that, God, you choose the most unlikely people to do your most amazing work. And we can be those people, God. We're reminded that, that we have an opportunity to take advantage of your timeless offer, and that is to forgive us of our sins, to restore our relationship with you. God, I pray that however you're speaking to us today, if you're speaking to a believer who needs to come back to you, that today that believer might not harden his or her heart, but they might listen to your voice and that they might confess their sin and allow you to purify them once again, restore the joy of their salvation. I pray especially if there's a person here who's never trusted you as Savior, that right now they might do that through a simple prayer that might go like this, God, I do confess to you that I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness And God, today, I want to do what Scripture says. 
I'm heeding the signs of the time. I know Jesus is coming back soon. And I want to confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. I get it, God. Jesus is your son. He died on the cross for sin. There is no other way back to you except through Jesus. And so today, Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Savior. Jesus, I believe you died and were buried on the third day rose again. And I believe you willingly went to the cross. And Jesus, I believe that because you willingly went to the cross, God has given you alone the authority to forgive me, to forgive my sin, to adopt me into his family. And so today, Jesus, I'm asking you to do that in my life. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, as my Savior. Scripture says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenge. We thank you for its, its motivation. Lord, I pray today that as we have heard your voice, that all of us will respond to that voice in faithfulness, in humility, in sincerity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.